Take your Bibles, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 is directly in the middle of the book of Leviticus. And since the book of Leviticus is the middle book of the first five books of the Bible, this is also directly in the middle of all of Moses' writings. Therefore, we would expect that this is a pivotal passage, and indeed it is. It describes for us the Day of Atonement, the highest, holiest day in the nation of Israel's calendar. It is still celebrated today in 2022. Typically in late September or early October, it is known as Yom Kippur. Yom Day Kippur from the root of the word to atone for, the Day of Atonement. Of all of the sacrifices, of all of the pictures of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, this chapter in the book of Leviticus is most apt. It is here that we find the fullness of what Christ did for us with his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his glorious and triumphant resurrection. The title for this morning is Forgiven. And regardless of how you walked in here this morning, and whatever name you may have given yourself, I pray that by the end of this morning, you will know that because of Jesus Christ, you have a new name, which is forgiven. I want to begin with some material that Mary Cassian presented when she was here back in 2016, I believe, at our Gospel Coalition Atlantic Canada Conference. It had the title of God as Father, and it worked through the life of Jacob and his struggle, his struggle to be accepted, his struggle to believe that indeed he was chosen by God and forgiven. And one of the things that Mary brought out is this idea of living with labels. We all have labels, self-imposed or otherwise. Jacob begins life with the name Jacob. Jacob means one who grabs by the heel, supplanter, deceiver. In our common word, maybe we could say Jacob means poser, fake, always second, but believes himself to be first. That was his name. Can you imagine? Hi, this is my son, second place. So he started life. And he lived up to it in the womb. Grabbed Esau by the heel, his twin brother. And throughout his early life, never believing that he had his father's love and affection and affirmation. In fact, Isaac wasn't even hiding it. Esau was the favorite. Jacob goes off and meets somebody that's more deceptive than him, his uncle Laban. A lot of years of struggle, at least 14, probably more. 
Finally, he's on his way back, and he's going to meet up with his twin brother, Esau. And the night before that takes place, Jacob wrestles with God, and God gives him a new name, the name Israel, which means one who wrestles with God, one who contends with God. Jacob, still wrestling. God, bless me. Struggled, struggled to believe that he had his father's love and affection. Struggled to believe that he had God's love and affection and forgiveness. And yet, how do we know that Jacob learned something along the way? We know that he didn't learn from playing favorites because he had his own, his wife Rachel. His first son by her, Joseph, was clearly the favorite, but he had two sons by Rachel. As Rachel is giving birth to her second son, she knows that birthing this child is going to cost her her life. And so she says, and one of the final things she says before dying, name this child Ben-Onai, which means son of my struggle. Now can you imagine going through life with the name, I killed my mother. Hi, this is my son, he killed my wife. What does Jacob do? Against his wife's final wish, he does not name his son, son of my struggle. What does he name him? Benjamin, son of my right hand. Jacob knows what it's like to live with labels. And he does not want his son to do the same. And as we read through the narrative, Joseph gets a lot of airtime, and that's rightfully so. But who is key to bringing that family back together? It's Benjamin, son of my right hand. So I don't know how you walked in here this morning. I don't know what labels you have hanging over your head and deeply affecting your heart. But I want you to know, based on this passage of Scripture and all throughout the rest of Scripture, that if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation... There is another label that is over you, on you, that defines you, and that is the word forgiven. So follow along if you would as I read verses 6 through 10 from Leviticus chapter 16. This is an overview of this day of atonement and the activity therein. The rest of the chapter will bear that out or, or flesh that out. Leviticus chapter 16 Starting with verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement for, over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. For more on Azazel, stay tuned, and also join us after the service for our time of Q&A. What do we have then in the beginning of this passage we have the establishment of the need for forgiveness in the first part of this chapter. I think one of our struggles with forgiveness 
is that we at least publicly <laughs> portray the reality that we probably don't need it, or at least not as much as that guy. But this passage of Scripture, as the rest of Scripture, lays us bare, exposes us to the light of perfection, and helps us to realize that we are all in need of forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of, if not the deepest need of our lives. Notice verse 2, if you would. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Verse 3, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place. There was a cube within the nation of Israel, a room that could not be entered except once a year. And only the high priest could go in there. And the central piece of furniture in that room was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, for those of you that are of a certain age and watched Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you picture that in your mind, they didn't do a half-bad job. It's a wooden box overlaid with gold, and on top of the lid of that box, there are two cherry beams. Cherubs, as we know them, are often fat babies with wings, and they are seen at Valentine's Day and shown to be rather cute, but that is not the cherubim. The cherubim are the protectors of God's holiness. It is a cherub that stood at the entrance to the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword so that no one would get back into the Garden of Eden to eat of the Tree of Life. That is, cherubs, the cherubim, are woven into the curtain. The veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies had cherubim all woven into it. They're the protectors of God's holiness. And on the lid of that gold box, two cherubim with their wings outstretched touch their wings over the top of it looking down at the box. What is in that box? There are three things in the box. There's the Ten Commandments. There is a bowl of manna. And there's Aaron's rod that budded. All three of these items in the Ark of the Covenant speak to at least two things. One is the mercy of God. The other is the rebellion of Israel. Every single element in the Ark of the Covenant almost screams out, Israel is a nation of rebel sinners. What happened to the first copy of the Ten Commandments, by the way? While Moses is up on the mountain receiving them from God himself, what is the nation of Israel doing down below? Openly rebelling against God. The manna. We have nothing to eat. Take us back to Egypt. You brought us out here to kill us. All right, I'll give you something to eat. What do they do? They hoard it. They gather too much. In the morning, there's maggots in it. They had to learn to trust God. And we've been eating this manna every day. We want something more. If you had a label for Israel, it would be whiners and complainers. If you had a label for us, it would be the same. And Aaron's rod that budded. What is the story there? Individuals come, and they rebel against Moses and Aaron's leadership. Sons of Korah. All three of the elements in the Ark of the Covenant are basically a megaphone screaming, Israel is rebellious. And between that and the presence of God is the cherubim, protectors of God's holiness. And yet, what is hovering directly over the lid of that Ark of the Covenant in what is known as the seat of propitiation or the seat of atonement or the mercy seat? What is there? 
the presence of God himself. God's presence hovering over symbols of Israel's rebellion. They are in need of forgiveness. The high priest is in need of forgiveness. He must offer a bull as a sin offering for himself before any of this day gets started. The high priest is a sinner. Verses 7 through 10, there's the sin of the people. Two goats are offered in this unique sacrifice. The first is a goat that is sacrificed in the usual way for a sin offering. The second is a goat that is uh, representative of the sins of the nation that is then led out into the wilderness and abandoned. Azazel is perhaps, I think, the best option, although the other options will be discussed after the service during the Q&A. It is a compound word of the words goat and to let go. It's basically what the King James would have rendered at as in English, the scapegoat or the scapegoat. So we get this idea in our culture. Someone who takes the fall for something, someone who takes the blame for something is the scapegoat. And that is what this goat is. And we'll get into more of that in just a moment. But it is the sin of the people that requires this offering. And then notice in verse 16, the pollution of sin. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Once a year, similar to how we do spring cleaning, there's the Day of Atonement, where sacrifice is made on behalf of the entire nation of Israel, because their sins are polluting the temple, the tabernacle. Their sins are causing a barrier between them and God. And so they would bring burnt offerings and sin offerings, guilt offerings, the different offerings that we've already looked through. But there were other sins, unintentional sins, or sins that were not offered, or sacrifices not offered for these sins. And so once a year, in this catch-all sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, because of the sin of the people, polluted everything, these offerings of atonement were made. And so there is a need for forgiveness. Our first struggle seems to be then that we don't think we need forgiveness. But our second struggle seems to be that we think that even if we do, that we can take care of it on our own. And of course, that is also incorrect. As the rest of the passage then fleshes out what this looks like, notice in second place, the provision for forgiveness. We've already mentioned the sin offerings. One for Aaron, for himself and for his family and his household, and one for the people. These sin offerings are uh, offered. And the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat are taken beyond the curtain, beyond the veil, into the most holy place. So holy that Aaron the high priest had to take a receptacle full of hot coals from off the altar. And back in the book of Exodus, there is a specific formula for incense. He's to pour the incense onto that uh, receptacle full of hot coals. And as that incense, the smoke from that incense goes up, it obscures the glory of God in that space so that he would not die. He goes into the Holy of Holies, sprinkles blood seven times on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, the top of the Ark of the Covenant for himself, goes back out, sacrifices the goat for the people, sins of the people, and comes back in and sprinkles the blood of the goat 
as well seven times. The sins of the people being atoned for on this one day, this holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Then in verses 20 and 22, 22 through 22, we have a more full understanding of the scapegoat. Aaron places both his hands on the head of the goat, which is different than when other sin offerings were made and only a single hand was put on the head of the goat. All of Israel's sins are placed on the head of this goat. And once that is done, symbolizing the transference of sin from Aaron onto the goat, the goat now bears the sins of the nation of Israel. He is brought out into the wilderness and let go. Later Judaism tells us that in order to guarantee the goat did not wander back into the camp, he was typically thrown off of a cliff. So regardless of which lot fell on which goat, they were both not going to end up very well that day. The nation of Israel is not involved in this sacrifice. All of this takes place through the high priest in the tabernacle complex. But this part of the ritual, they can see. They can see the goat being led out of their camp and away into the wilderness. That is, David would say in Psalm 103, that God takes our sin and removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. A physical picture of the sins of the nation leaving the camp. Forgiveness. And then in verses 23 through 24, there is burnt offerings. Two rams, one for Aaron and one for the people. The burnt offerings are given. Notice then in the third place this morning, there is gratitude for forgiveness. What is the response of the people? Three things. The first place, they are told that this needs to be an annual observance. This is something that needs to play, take place every year. So in verse 29, it shall be a statute to you forever. Verse 34, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. This started here in the book of Leviticus and continues to this day in 2022. Yom Kippur will be celebrated this fall. This is something that the nation of Israel was to do. It was an annual reminder of their sinfulness and God's forgiveness. Two things they were to do then. Two other things they were to do personally. First, they were to fast. Verse 29 says, you shall afflict yourself. Verse 31, you shall afflict yourselves. Other places in the Old Testament seem to indicate that at the very least, fasting is in view here. On this day, they were to have an, a national fast. To cease from normal eating and to instead focus on God, on their sins and his forgiveness. And then regardless of what day this fell on, this was also a day of national rest. You shall afflict yourselves, verse 29, and do no work. Verse 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And so as this is taking place in the tabernacle, in their tents, they are fasting and they are resting. And they are reminding themselves that their name is no longer whiners. Their name is no longer ungrateful. Their name is no longer shameful. But their name is forgiven. And notice in the fourth place this morning, the promise of forgiveness. Based on the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, this may be a verse you want to mark in your Bibles. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all 
your sins. Now, there are certainly times we do not feel forgiven. You may be sitting here this morning, and that is true of you. You don't feel forgiven. You know things that you have done. You know things you've left undone. You know that if you were God, you probably wouldn't forgive you. But God himself, through Jesus Christ, does not call you son or daughter of shame, does not call you son or daughter who probably won't make it, does not call you second place, God, your Father, if you are in Christ here this morning, looks on you and calls you, among other things, forgiven. And that is regardless of how we feel. God himself has declared it to be true through Jesus Christ. And so notice, if you would, the glorious final point this morning. We have final and full forgiveness. Everything about this scene screams Jesus. Notice in the first place that Jesus is the perfect high priest. Hebrews 10, 19 through 21. That's the intention is to go to the book of Hebrews next year. That's why we're in Leviticus this year, partly. You can't really fully understand all that Jesus has done for us and, and the glories of the book of Hebrews unless you understand the shadow of the perfect in the book of Leviticus. This day, this day of atonement, has Jesus all over it. Aaron, it says, and any of the high priests, according to the author of the book of Hebrews, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Jesus offered no such sacrifice for himself. He was perfect in himself. The God-man was perfect. There was no need of sacrifice on his behalf. Aaron and all the high priests that came after him were subject to death because of their sin and decay. That's why this is a perpetual statute, it says. This had to happen all the time, but until the time of Jesus. But Jesus is forever. He is the eternal one, the everlasting one, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And so his sacrifice has no ending. And he is the great and perfect high priest. He himself offered his own sacrifice and was able then to go beyond the veil and not only to go into the Holy of Holies, but when he cried from the cross, it is finished, that curtain with all the cherub beam woven into it, the protectors of God's holiness was ripped in half. Access was granted to all who are in Christ, to the very presence of God himself. Number two, Jesus is the final sin offering. We've already mentioned this. We talked about the sin offerings. But these sin offerings, they were not offered. Jesus did not offer a sin offering for himself as Aaron had to do. But he was the final sin offering. And what does it say in Hebrews 10? When he offered his sacrifice, he offered it once. Once for all and is seated at the right hand of God. His sacrifice is final. There's no more need for any more sin offerings. He is the perfect sin offering. Notice in the third place, Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat. What does it say in Isaiah 53? He bore our sins. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the city of Jerusalem. He took our sins on himself and was banished thereby. Jesus is the one that takes our sins and removes them from us. They're placed on him. All of God's just wrath goes on Jesus and not on us. 
And he bears our sins outside of the camp on our behalf. Notice in the fourth place this morning, Jesus is the mercy seat. In Romans 3.25, it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And the word for propitiation is the same Greek word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the mercy seat. Who is it that bridges the gap between the sins of the people and the presence of God? Who's in that middle gap? Who's in the mercy seat? Jesus. He's the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the one that enables the presence of God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And in the case of us, because of his once and for all sacrifice, God himself indwells us. God's Holy Spirit is in everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. There are no more sacrifices that need to be made. They're all done. Jesus, when he cried from the cross, single word in Greek, three words in English, it is finished. It's done. The final price and the full price has been paid. And so again, you may be here this morning and you're smiling and you're shaking hands and you're laughing, but inside you have a name for yourself, a label. Perhaps it's shame. Because nobody else in this place, not even your spouse, knows about that thing or those things that you have done. Perhaps your name is, in your mind, ungrateful. Perhaps the name that you have for yourself as you sit here this morning is not good enough. Perhaps your name for yourself as you sit here this morning is, I'm not sure. Does God love me? Intellectually, I know it. Experientially, I'm struggling. Can I declare to you this morning that the one who made you says to you through Jesus Christ that in his son you are forgiven. Forgiven. That's one of your new names in Jesus Christ. On the days where you don't feel it, through the seasons where you doubt it, please mark it down. There was not a day of atonement, but there was a day of atonement, not Yom Kippur, but Good Friday, when Jesus Christ the righteous took all of your sins, all of them, and he paid it in full. So that despite how incredible that is to grasp, when God sees you, he sees you in Christ, forgiven. Now notice as we close, if you would, we oftentimes look at the Old Testament and the New, and we see a list of commands. We see the weight 
of the holiness of God. We think on us. Do this, don't do that. And our view of Scripture is that it's a list of rules and regulations that we can't keep. And that's part of the reason, perhaps, that we sit here this morning and do not feel forgiven. But please, if you would, notice always in Scripture the placement of the commands of God always come after the truth of the grace of God. Where do we find the Ten Commandments? After the exodus from Egypt. Where do we find the commands for the nation of Israel of purity, of living correctly, and a holy lifestyle before God? That starts in the book of Leviticus in chapter 17. Before any of that begins, we have the sacrifices, the institution of the priesthood, rules and regulations regarding uncleanness, the effects of sin. But before Leviticus ever gets into any rules and regulations for the people, what comes directly before that. What is at the middle of this book and at the heart of all that Moses wrote? Atonement, grace, forgiveness. The commands of Scripture and the writings of the New Testament, what always precedes them, even as we looked at the book of Romans last year, the grace of God. Indicatives before imperatives, always. God does not command that which he has not already made provision for. And ultimately, the fulfillment of those commands has already been done for us. Because not only are we forgiven, in Jesus Christ we are also free. And oh, if we could live that way. <laughs> Every year, the nation of were reminded Leviticus 16.30 For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And on that good Friday, almost 2,000 years ago, what did Jesus Christ the righteous declare definitively? It is finished. Whatever label you had for yourself walking in here this morning, my prayer is that you can leave this morning with this label. One of many in Christ forgiven. That's who you are in Christ. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you. Thank you for Christ. We are not worthy, but we are not worthless. We are loved, forgiven, and free in Christ. Father, there are days and there are seasons where we don't feel like it. We know what we have done and what we've left undone. In moments of honesty, we know who we are. And it's at those precise moments that we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. We are forgiven. So that our lives can be lived out of gratitude to God for that forgiveness. And it can look like you 
But Father, we can forgive because we've been forgiven. That we love because we've been loved. We are kind because immeasurable kindness has been shown to us. We are humble because you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We no longer worship ourselves. We worship you. Father, even as your servant Aaron the high priest removed the priestly garments on this day and dressed himself in simple linen, we are simply humble sinners who have been declared to be saints because of Jesus Christ the righteous. That's who we are. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're not here to promote ourselves. We are here so that through us, people can see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.